Very nice. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians in case you're thinking that's Boston. Uh, more than a feeling. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I went to our super sharp research team here at Crestwood this week and I asked them, her, to do some research for me uh, because I had heard about this particular place and I wanted to get a good look at it for you to get a good look at it as we started today. So we got a few pictures of this place. I'm not even going to try to uh, pronounce the name of it or the name of the city. The name of the place is called the Ice Hotel. And uh, this is in northern Sweden. And uh, it is a genuine hotel. And so if you're wondering what you're going to do for your next getaway vacation, uh, between, well, sometime in mid-December or so through mid-April, you can go to northern Sweden and you can book a room in this ice hotel. It is made totally out of ice and snice. Snice is a term that they have put together because it's a mixture of snow and ice. As a matter of fact, they begin working on this in mid to late April when they steal or harvest uh, roughly 1,000 tons of ice out of the Torn River. And they keep it in cold storage. That's not a joke. That's true. They keep it in cold storage through the summer months. And then in late fall, they begin to be, uh, build this ice hotel. Genu- everything's made of ice. The rooms are made of ice, the beds, all that kind of stuff. And uh, some 50,000 people a year visit this place. 30,000 tons of snice combined with the 1,000 tons of ice and this is what you get in return. Right next door, part of the, the facility itself, uh, they've built an ice church or an ice chapel. And uh, they say, this is interesting, and I can't imagine anybody wanting to do it, but uh, that thousands of people get baptized there every year. And with spring thaw, this goes away, and they start over again. Next year, I start with that because I think it is sadly a picture of many churches in Western American Christianity. Cold, inhospitable, a dangerous environment. And despite all of that, like those people who market the ice hotel, those churches market themselves to a public that take one dip of their toe into the iciness of the environment and say, well, I did it, but not sure that I'm going to want to live there. There's a lot wrong with American Christianity. A lot of churches are marked by their icy disposition internally and externally. While that may be true of other churches, we are not responsible for other churches. The only one we're responsible for is this one. And so as we go into these days of this particular series, I want to kind of draw our attention back to the environment that must be created inside the church. Because the environment that we create inside the church, by definition, will begin to seep outside of the church. And if we create iciness inside, nobody in their right mind on the outside is going to want part of what we have. And so Jesus says, as we saw last week, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. The way we get this right is we must get our love right internally. But that's hard. 
It's easy to stand here on a given Sunday and all of us together can say, yes, we need to get our love right. As one guy said in the early service in one of his prayers, he said, we thank you that our church is one where love just flows out the door. Well, that's, an, that's a great insight on how we work, but we must realize that it is not easy to get love right. And there's a couple of reasons for that that I want to share as we even just get started today. I'm, I'm doing this series. How should we behave? How should we handle ourselves? And, and the way we handle ourselves is largely determined by who we are. We've already seen that Jesus says, and our choir reminded us today of another thing that John said in his little epistle called First John, that the people around us are going to know us by our love. By definition, that means if there's not any, they'll know that too. So let's get it right. But it's hard to get it right because there's so many things about love as we talk about it that the world doesn't get right. And we often base our perceptions and our perspectives on this on what we see out there. When we want to get it right, it's just not always easy to get it right. Here's one of the reasons for that. We as a people tend to make love a consumer product. It's as if we say, well, let me just say it this way. This is going to get, I just need to let you know, for the next five minutes or so, this this might get really uncomfortable, okay? I told them in the early service, if I'm going to get fired, I at least might as well get fired for preaching truth, all right? So it may may get a little uncomfortable for some of us here, but I'm comfortable with uncomfortableness as long as it's somebody else's and not mine, right? We tend to be consumer-oriented in the way we handle ourselves, especially when it comes to love. Let's, Let's put it in the business realm first. Most of us handle ourselves in such a way that we know that we have freedom of choice. I know that we're going to be going to lunch here pretty soon. Well, I mean, that's relative, right? With me preaching pretty soon may mean any number of things. But um, when we leave here, we're going to go to lunch. And I don't want to ruin your lunch, all right? But I do want to put this right down there on the bottom shelf where we all live all the time. Let's say you go from here and today, because you don't want to fight the crowds next week for Mother's Day, today you go out to eat for lunch. And you go to some restaurant and you sit down and while you're sitting there, everything's great. The service is good. You go in, you get to sit down right away. You know, they bring you the stuff you want and the stuff to nibble on. So, and all of that happens and then they bring you your plate and right in the middle of the plate that they bring to you is a three-inch long cockroach. Now, aren't you ready to go to lunch? Check your burgers. If that happened to you, Would you go back to that restaurant? Not a chance, right? Because the consumer part of us says, that just makes no sense. I deserve better than cockroaches for lunch. One of the things that I, I, I'm getting really fed up with Facebook, right? It's just a colossal waste of time anymore. But um, one of the things that I check every time it comes out, once a week, and it's usually late in the week if I remember right, uh, I always check for that television station locally that does the restaurant report. Have you seen that one? It's they go and they get the health inspector's reports and they give the grades and all that online. That way I don't have to find a cockroach on my plate because I know those places ahead of time. 
The consumer part of us lives life like that. I don't get the service I want. I will take my business somewhere else. You want to know how many times over a ministry career of several decades now, how many times I've had church people tell me that? I would love to stay at that church, but, you know, and then they give me their reasons for not staying at that church. You know what it usually boils down to? I'm a consumer, and I'm not satisfied with the product. Love is hard to get right when that's your perspective. I'm not being treated right. So here's a good, I'm going to give you several truths that I want you to just write on the inside of your skull so your brain sees them all day, every day. Here's the first one. Love is a responsibility, not a right. Often I'll say something like that and just pause to hear if there's any amens tied to it. Sometimes there's not because some of these truths, we don't like the amen. The consumer part of us says, I deserve to be treated correctly. Whatever else you want to call that, that's not a biblical perspective of love. If it was, Jesus would have never gone to the cross. Love is a responsibility, not a right. And if that's true, here's where I'm going to make some of you mad. I know it. I'm okay with that. If that's true, and it is, then stop expecting it and start giving it. This one I'm pausing because I want it to sink deep. Stop expecting people, even church people, Stop expecting them to treat you right just because you're breathing. Start giving it as a matter of life. Here's another way to say that. If you're upset about the way you're being treated, stop whining and start thinking about how true love responds to that. Again, Jesus is the best example of that for us. If Jesus on the cross or even after the cross was to go around all the time saying, well, those people, you know, I did the best I could do for them and they just don't appreciate that. (laughs) If that was Jesus' response and his response to that would be, and because of that, I'm just going to take my toys and go to another planet because maybe those people will appreciate me better. Stop whining when it comes to love and how you're being treated. I'm going to make up a word for you here. True genius can make up words. And so can I. That, I have nothing to do with the genius, but I can make up my own words. Anti-love. Okay? It's not the against love. It's just the opposite. Not really the opposite. We talked about that some last week, so I make up my own word because I'm not sure exactly how to, how to put it in another word. This is the idea that the love or, or the, the, the non-love that is what we get often, that anti-love happens when we are so self-focused that we refuse to see the other person correctly. Let me make sure you get what I mean by that. Self-focused living says they're not treating me right or they are treating me right and I believe that I deserve this and they should do this and, and it's about me. 
But that's not the love perspective. The perspective of love says, I see you. We talked about this last couple of weeks in the definition of love that we've been using here. It is the investment of self into somebody else to take them to a level or to a place they could never get to on their own. Again, Jesus is the best picture of that. He died for your sins because you could not have life without him. And so he invested himself, God's love, in person. And he elevates you and me to a level of living that we could never achieve on our own. That's love. That's what we are responsible for giving to other people. But when we get so focused on ourselves that we refuse to see, it's not that we cannot see, that's a cop-out. I just didn't know. Well, I just didn't realize. That doesn't matter. You weren't looking. That's what this amounts to. We refuse to see the other person correctly in their pain, in their struggles, in the garbage that comes with them. I, I was having a discussion with Teresa this week. Well, more than one, but this one in particular. Excuse me. Um, she has a job now. Well, she's, she's had a job. It's not like she's sitting around doing nothing, but um, she's got a job that puts her into a segment of our population where children are routinely left behind. It kills me to hear her, to hear her talk about some of the stuff that kids are going through. Some of you are teachers in public schools, and you, you see that every day. Those kids come into your classroom, and they have this need to give love to somebody, but there's nobody in their life to give it to except you. And Teresa was talking about some of the stuff that was going on, and she just on the surface level. And my response to her was, what are we doing to the children of America these days? But you see the way our anti-love establishment works. If it doesn't directly affect me, it doesn't matter. I don't have to see them. That hurts my heart or it makes me uncomfortable or it makes me mad, so I'll just divert my focus over here. Anti-love happens when we refuse to see other people because we're so self-focused. You see what I mean? It's hard to get love right. Everything around us screams out, it's about you and your rights. So we need to find some help when it comes to how to get this right. And so we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And Paul, in, as we come to this passage, and we're only going to be in the first part of one verse, verse 4 here. Okay, I could read the whole thing, but we'll get to those eventually. And uh, But... In this, what we find is Paul is speaking to a church, actually a series of churches in Corinth. And it it is the picture of dysfunctionalism for churches. These are people who are abusing one another for status and for power. And Paul writes into the mix of that and a whole series of problems in that church. And he addresses them one by one. By the time we get to chapter 13, Paul has laid out a series of challenges for them that put him in hot water with some of those people. But he says to them, we need to get this right. And the problem with them and the problem with our churches these days is when we get it wrong in the church and we don't respond and relate with one another correctly, what happens outside of the church is our witness gets destroyed. 
turmoil in the church has a way of finding its way out into the community. And the community says, I don't need any of that. I get that in my home and in my business and in my extended family. I don't need to go to church to find anti-love. So Paul writes and he says, among other things, you've got to get your order and worship right. And you're stepping on one another, uh, trying to get order and worship right. And so he goes to spiritual gifts and he says, each of you do what you're gifted to do. And the whole body held together gets it right. And in the middle of all of that discussion, we find 1 Corinthians 13. It's not Paul's great uh, chasing a rabbit or anything like that. He says, I'm going to show you an even more excellent way. In other words, what Paul says is, with all the wrong stuff going on in the Corinthian churches, and by extension in the American church of our day, he said there is a more excellent way. The thing that drives all of it is love. We have to get this right. And so he says in verse a very specific way for us to do it is love is patient. I could continue on. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude, etc. Fifteen different statements in a five-verse stretch. Paul says this is what love looks like. But before we get to the specifics, and that one that I'm going to talk about at length is love is patient. There's another big truth that I want you to get today, okay? This is another one of those, write it on the inside of your skull so your brain has to deal with it every day. Here's the deal. This is the song when I started. Love is more than a feeling. Now, clearly, the classic rock group called Boston understands that love is a feeling. I'm not denying that. But Scripture says love is more than a feeling. But you see, that is so contrary to the way our society looks at love. Let me challenge you. If you happen to be one who spends time listening to secular radio or songs of any kind, this week, go into the week with this homework. Listen to the songs that are played on the radio and on the internet and all, you know, listen to the songs of our day, no matter what the genre is, country, western, religious, that is classic rock, whatever your style of it is, listen to all of that stuff and listen to the way those songwriters talk about love. And what you will find bubbling to the surface is a basic theme that tends toward it is a feeling, an emotion. And so we start having these discussions, and, and it see, that's the problem with music as such a big part of how we live our lives. If it's not, let me say this the right way, the music and the lyrics do matter, and as we let that stuff set in on us, we begin to adopt some of the values of those musicians into the way we think and live. And if the society at large is reflected in our music, then what our music is teaching us is the value of society says that love comes and goes. We have such an inadequate perception of what love is in our society that we've had to redefine it for ourselves because that part doesn't really work. I hear people say, okay, my daughter's down here, Lauren. Uh, in a month and one day, 
she's going to get married. If this knucklehead she's dealing with is going to stick with her long enough, they'll get married in a, a month and a day, right? Month and a day, right? June the 5th, okay? We're, we're looking forward to June the 6th, Teresa and I are. <laughs> Last Monday, John is on staff at a church over uh, in uh, Magnolia. Thank you. Um, and so they did a church wedding shower for John and Lauren. And they, it's the worst kind of shower that anybody could ever throw for anybody. You know what kind those are? Couple showers. Oh, man. Teresa says, you know you got to go. Oh, man. Could I just send a gift? Wait a minute. I'm paying for the wedding. I don't have to send a gift. You got to go. I don't want. Oh, man. <laughs> it's not that I don't love my daughter. I just hate showers. So we're at this shower, and that church is throwing this shower for Lauren and John. And it was great. I mean, you know, it, no, no, it wasn't great. It was, it was okay. We, we went. And um, <laughs> why, there were things about it that I loved, all right? I loved to see Lauren and their church and meet, meet some of the people there. That was great. Love watching how they love her. That was great, okay? But the, the most entertaining part of the whole evening was I was watching Lauren and John together. Okay, this is bride and groom-to-be, right? Disgusting. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The, the love thing, you know, this like, oh, you know, those stupid little looks that people in love give each other and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just like, oh, please. And, and as I was enjoying that with them, you know I love you, right? As I was, as I was enjoying that with them, I was flashing through my office and the hundreds of hours I'd spent with couples who were fighting. And I was watching these emotionally based love responses in them thinking, ooh, I bet when the fights start happening, it's going to look totally different in those eyes. (laughs) You see, that's the problem with some of the way we look at love. I think Lauren has much more going for her than what I just let on, by the way. You should know that. And I think John does too. And they have a good pastor over there who's helping them work through stuff even ahead of time to make sure that they don't fall apart when the emotion of love falls away. Because here's a reality for you. The emotion of love will fall away. Because it's not what love is. It's just emotion. So we've had to come up because we've built entire marriages on the idea that I fell in love. No, you tripped and hit your head. That's not falling in love. So if that's the wrong perspective in the first place and we build an entire marriage around that and then it starts falling apart, we created a whole new term. Well, we just fell out of love. No, you didn't. You stopped choosing to love. And usually... That kind of love is the kind that I just got through talking about. It's the self-focused kind that says, I deserve this. You owe this to me. I've given up everything for you. So you should do this for me. Whatever else you want to call that, that is not biblical love. And I want to take it off of marriage, and I want to put it right square in the middle of us in our lap as a church. When we expect people 
to treat us well in order to earn our favor, that's not love. In five verses, 15 different descriptions of love, and in every one of those, Paul uses those descriptions as verbs, not adjectives. I'm not going to take the time to go do all of the English grammar of this, but the way the English translation is written here, it says love is patient. Is is a linking verb. All right? Go back, check with the teacher, figure out what that means. But the way it's written in the original language is that word patient is a verb. Love, patience. Well, see, that doesn't sound right to us, so we throw a linking verb in there. We say love is patient. Let me show you why that matters as we move forward. First of all, quote from Dr. David Garland, okay? One of the, the preeminent New Testament scholars of our day and happened to be a professor of mine and somebody else in our church uh, and others that you'll know eventually. Dr. Garland says this about this little passage. Love is dynamic and active, It is not something static. It doesn't just sit there. He says it is not talking about some inner feeling or emotion. Love cannot be conveyed by words. It has to be shown. Love is a verb, not an adjective. That's why I said yesterday in social media stuff, just as a teaser for today, love is means very little if it's not accompanied by love does. You see, that's threatening to our society. I don't want to have to do something for love. I just feed off of the emotion of this. Paul will have none of that in a Corinthian church that is full of emotion that's negative and full of bad treatment of other people. So if we're going to love right, we have to get this right in our lives. Love does. It is active. It has to be down in your feet. It has to breathe out of your life in every way that you live especially as you relate to other people. And that pushes us to get specific. And so Paul now begins to get specific. Love is, in this case, patient. Now, I think various translations say this different ways. I think we've got a few of those here. Ours, the one I'm reading says love is patient. King James says love suffers long. They get that verb idea there. They don't say love is whatever. It just says love suffers long. That's a pretty encouraging statement. Love is very patient. Love never gives up. Let's pull it apart for just a second. We tend to think of patience as kind of inactive. It's a passive thing. We, 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 you know, waits. I think that was one of the ones that's up there, right? Love waits. Patience is waiting. You want a good example of that? You go to a doctor's office. What is that room they have outside before you go in? It is a waiting room. The doctor could care. Now, if there's a doctor, physician in here, God love you, okay? We try to. Um, A waiting room. The doctor generally could care less how bad you feel or what you're doing out there. He's busy. He doesn't do his stuff in the waiting room. He's in the examination room. He's working. You, on the other hand, go out there and wait. And so what do you do? You wait. 
And some doctors are especially good at making you wait. Well, that's okay. We understand that in society. We get that. But that's our view sometimes of what patience is. It's interesting to me that the place you find the least amount of patience is in a waiting room where patients are waiting for the doctor. You watch some people in there when they have to wait longer than they think they're supposed to have to wait. We get up in arms. We get active. That's sort of what we get with this word. This is a Greek word. It's actually two words put together. The first one means long. As it relates to time, it's long. Not a short period of time, but a long period of time. The second word is the one that kind of begins to get us, and it gives us two different ways to apply it. It's the word thumos, and the basic idea... We mostly take it as angry, long in anger. And so some of us hear that and we go, good. See, there's my example. I can be angry for a long time. That's not the word. The opposite of that particular meaning we would call short-fused. You know people like that? They got such a short fuse that you know you better be careful in dealing with them. Played golf with a guy one time. This guy was a marketing genius. Remember the old Pepsi commercials of uh, Ray Charles? And I don't even remember what it was about now, but that was a long time ago for most of us. Uh, This guy was the one who originally came up with that idea. Played golf with him. Oh, my goodness. He had a couple of good shots. He hit one bad shot. He took his golf clubs and threw them in the lake. Walked off the course. I'll never play golf again. Short fuse. This word is the opposite of that. This is the idea where we postpone our anger for the benefit of the other person. So let's put it right down the bottom shelf where we live. This is the one that says, as people do me wrong because I love them, instead of an emotional response of anger towards them, I will set back and hold that at bay. If we're not careful, that becomes deceiving rage inside of us. But that's not love either. This is the part that says, and it comes from the Old Testament. I mean, there's an Old Testament use of this. We pull it over into the New Testament, Exodus 34, 6. God identifies himself as being slow to anger. That's the picture here. This is a divine element of what love is. That whole picture of God slow to anger is the one that says, I recognize unrighteousness. I recognize guilt. I recognize that what you deserve for what you did is justice. But I withhold that justice long enough for you to get it right. So love says, as far as being long-tempered, It says, I will withhold the emotional response that would destroy you so that I can invest in you and help you get to a better place. Do you see how different that is from the one that says, well, I wasn't treated right, so I just think I'll just whatever. This is a very God kind of perspective here. People are going to do you wrong. That's bad grammar, but it's good truth. If you, if you happen to be new to the planet, let me just tell you, people will do you wrong. The loving response 
is the one that is long-tempered, that invests in them. It holds off until an appropriate time. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is an appropriate time where God will say, okay, you've had enough time. Now you will pay for your sin if you choose not to respond to his love. But he wants to help you through it. And he wants us to do the same for one another. So many people in church write other people off because they just messed up. Here's the other part of this. It is one of those words that King James says, love suffers long. The word is long-suffering. Don't miss that. When you invest yourself in people, they're going to hurt you. They're going to not always respond to your investment very well. But love says, even though it hurts me, I'm going to stick with it with you. That's different for us. How do you handle incompetent people? (laughs) I had a guy tell me one time in this church, I know that you don't really want to influence the way we're thinking, but I said, oh, 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 hold on a second. I absolutely want to influence how you're thinking. You better believe I want to influence how you're thinking. I wouldn't bother preaching every week if I didn't want to influence how you're thinking. But the deal is, I just don't have to have my way. His response to me was, oh, well, that's the difference between me and you. I've got to have my way. Well, okay, that's fine. Might or might not be a loving thing. How do you handle people who don't think your way? Love says, I'm going to stick with you. And I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait. And while I'm waiting, I'm going to invest myself in you to help you see a better way. Love is patient. Parents, for those of you who are parents, you ever have those days with your kids where you just have had enough? And you mess with them long enough, you go, just sit down, I'll do it myself. Okay, that's not love is patient. Okay, as much as I love you, I got to tell you, that's not love is patient. Because you're not teaching that child to work through things. Now, if you do that instead of killing them, more power to you. That's a good choice. But the picture here, and I'm not so much worried about parents with their children as much as I'm worried about church people with church people, okay? Everybody hasn't gotten to the level you might have gotten in your spiritual life, and you cannot lord that over them, neither can you beat them down because of that. You invest in them, and over the long haul, you say, we're going together to a better place, and you're killing me today, but I'm going to stick with it with you. That's good news. I'm so glad God does me that way because I don't get it most of the time. You want to talk about incompetence, I'm totally incompetent in this thing called the Christian life except that God says, I'll walk with you through this. That's love. Love waits and it waits and it waits because it's about the other person. It's not about you. So I told you this wasn't going to be easy. One of the reasons it's not going to be easy for us is because we live in a society that doesn't want to wait. (laughs) One of the best comments I ever got, I was having a discussion about this kind of stuff with a guy old. Well, he wasn't old. He's about my age. At the time, that wasn't old at all. 
southeastern New Mexico. Little cowboy. I mean, he's just a cowboy. He's one of the most earthy guys I'd ever met. And so we were talking about patience, and he looked me dead square in the eyes, and he said, let me tell you something, Mark. I don't have time for patience. <laughs> you know what I've found through the years? That's the battle cry of our world. We don't have time to wait. You want a good example of this? We live in a very impatient society. Let me once again put you behind the wheel of your vehicle and drive you through Beaumont during rush hour. Let me go public service announcement for you. Um, they have lowered the speed limit from the mall till past the split in where I-10 splits. Did you know that? It's 55 now. It's not 95 like some of us are driving. I nearly got run off the road the other day going 58. Now, we have a Beaumont police officer here, and I may get a ticket for going three miles over, but some of those people were going 108. You know why? We don't have time to slow down to 55. We've got places to go. Watch how impatient our society is every time you get in behind the wheel of your car. This is not going to be easy, this love is patient thing. Everything in our society screams out against it. So when you see that person who is hurting you and you want to retaliate, and you see that person who is slowing you down and you want to kick them to the curb, or you see that person who's making you mad and you just want to make them pay, remember, love suffers long. Let God's love drive you into investing in them and wait. Let's pray. You try to do this in your own strength, you're going to be a miserable failure, I promise you. This is a divine characteristic here. But it is the place to start. I think Paul puts it at the front of the list on purpose. The people around you are no different than you. God loves them enough to wait for them, to send his son to die on a cross. And if he loves them that much, shouldn't you also? I think part of our problem is in these kind of things, we don't have any trouble with this whole concept when it's the people that we like. It's the people that we don't like that really get us when it comes to love as patient. here today and you've never experienced the, the source of this love. I've mentioned several times that Jesus is the epitome, the example, the prime manifestation of the love of God. If you've not experienced that, today is the day that that could all change for you and life could get so much better right now. Jesus Christ loved you enough to die for your sin. That's his investment in you. He will walk with you through life and give you meaning that you could never have. And if you don't know that, then I would invite you right now. Just get up from where you are and come down. We'll talk with you, introduce you to him. Maybe you know him, but this whole idea of his love is a foreign concept in your life. You've bought into a system of the world that just kind of lets us go through the motions and live in an emotional quagmire. Where's your love? 
What is love doing through you? Father, use this time for your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name.